tapirs are the largest neotropical mammal. Without tapirs, there's no house builders for jaguars. They are pooping forests all around the place. And they have a major role in carbon sequestration and in the fight against climate change. That was Esteban Brenes Mora. He's one of the top tapir researchers in the world. And that high-pitched squealing you're listening to? That is the sound of a beard's tapir. Today, less than 5,000 adults remain in the wild. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. Today, I am introducing you to Esteban Brenes Mora, the founder and director of Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation and one of the world's top tapir researchers. Born and raised in Costa Rica, Esteban's career really took off while conducting research in Malaysia, where he was awarded a ZSL fellowship. The fellowship focused on tapir research. Now fast forward, and he has dedicated his entire life toward protecting this massive, elusive tropical mammal. Now, I have never seen a tapir, and I hadn't even heard of the animal before I moved to Costa Rica. So I was especially excited to sit down with a man known nationally as the tapir guy. So, Dave, your guy, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing fine. Thank you. That's that's a nickname I actually love. <laughs> it's a good one. It's very unique. Esteban, I'm sure I missed something with my introduction. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I call myself more than a conservation scientist, a conservation practitioner. I like taking conservation into action. I like grabbing science, grabbing education and communication and all sort of disciplines and turn them into conservation action. So right now I'm a director of Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation, and I'm also involved with other organizations such as OSA Conservation. I'm a board member and a project collaborator. I also work with Asana, which is another NGO in Costa Rica. And I'm part of several international alliances like the Bird Tapir Survival Alliance. Thank you, Esteban. And I love that term, conservation practitioner. I don't think I've heard that one before. Is there a story behind that title? Well, I, I was not the creator of the term. I've heard it in, you know, people use it because we're trying to move away from that hierarchy or people looking up to scientists as someone that they can never be you know, there's a lot of people doing conservation without going to school. There's a lot of kids doing conservation. There's a lot of elderies. There's a lot of farmers. So I'm just one of them. My role might be inside the NGO and scientific world, but I'm not more. 
that someone who's farming responsibly, I'm not more than a responsible fisherman. So I like that term better. Uh, and you know, when I'm in the field, I never introduce myself as a biologist or as a director or anything. I'm just a dude. I'm Esteban and I like animals and I like talking about football. I like having beer. And I think that's the best way to open doors to be a conservation practitioner, you know, be just a, an honest man. Well, maybe I should go back and change that introduction from all of your academic background to this is Esteban and he's a dude who likes animals. <laughs> I, I think that that's a more accurate description. <laughs> <laughs> and so obviously you had this connection to tapirs, to this animal that you wanted to work with, but maybe you hadn't worked with before, but you were willing to kind of dedicate the next years of your life to this animal. Where did that, where does that passion stem from? You know, my passion for tapirs started when I was a kid. Both of my parents worked. So I spent a lot of time with my grandfather and he was all about National Geographic magazines. So I would go out to the backyard, look around, and then we would look at magazines and he will, you know, make up stories about what we saw in the backyard. It was just exploding on my imagination. You know, like in one of those magazines, my grandpa was showing to me there was this image of a tapir. It was an illustration of a tapir being eaten by a tiger. It was a Malayan tapir being eaten by a tiger. And, you know, all the kids and I guess everyone was just so excited about the carnivore, of course. And I asked my grandpa, what's that animal back there? And he said, it's a tapir. And then we started looking and then I went to the local zoo. There was a tapir that his name was Solom. And he would pee over you every time you get close to its cage. It was just a tiny cage and the, the big tapir. And then I went to Osa Peninsula, actually, and we got to see a tapir when I was a kid. So after that, I just fell in love with the animal. And I'm a little embarrassed because I feel like I'm kind of at the stage that you are when you were a little kid looking at a picture of a tapir in National Geographic. I don't know if I would like recognize a tapir <laughs> out in the wild what can you even can you describe it to me what what does it look like it's a large cow-like animal right oh that's that's offensive <laughs> <laughs> okay you you go take your guy tell, tell me about it make me fall in love so actually tapirs are the largest neotropical mammal it, so there's there's a couple of descriptions i've heard i'm going to quote them it's like a long-nosed pig or a short-nosed elephant None of those previous descriptions are accurate. Actually, tapirs are more closely related to rhinos and horses. They are the largest neotropical mammal, up to 300 kilos. Okay, I quickly want to jump in here and add some kilo context in case you're like me and still struggling to picture this rainforest rhino horse. So 300 kilos is about 660 pounds. So this creature weighs the same amount as three of my dads stacked on top of each other. Another way to picture it, tapirs weigh the same as those massive metal dumpsters you find outside of restaurants or school buildings. Okay, I'll let Esteban keep breaking tapirs down for you now. And they have a proboscis, like the elephant's trunk, and they use it probably for the same purposes in a smaller scale, and they are strictly herbivores that makes them really really important for the ecosystem uh, basically they are pooping forest all around the place and they have a major role in carbon sequestration and in the fight against climate change and biodiversity uh, conservation so why not loving them why not protecting them 
why not dedicate your life to them as yeah. you obviously did yeah it's it's just like uh you know like i'm trying to give back to them they have been here for over 35 to 50 million years i think in my 75 years if i'm lucky i can give back a little bit and you know like it's just sharing the benefits they provide with everyone else and I think the tapirs are lucky to have you. I saw that they are still on the IUCN red list and tapirs across the world are classified as endangered. Yeah, that's correct. And sadly, we have less than 5,000 adults in the wild. In the entire world? For, for the species we're working with, which is the Central American tapir, birds tapir, they are. There are four different species of tapirs. One in, in the Southeast Asia region, which is the Malayan tapir. And then we have the lowland tapir in the Amazon, the Cerrado, the Pampas. And then we have the Andean tapir up in, in the Andes and the Central American tapir or birds tapir, the one we have here in Costa Rica and Central America and the one I work with. But yeah, sadly, the distribution range for birds tapir have shrank in the last century. Wow significantly and right now we have less than 5,000 individuals and in the last 10 years we have lost a high percentage of the remaining habitat that are core forested areas such as Indio Maíz, La Mosquitia, Selva Maya, Tortuguero and La Amistad and Darien. We're losing them and we're losing their habitat so they're still in danger so there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah it sounds like it. That's hard to hear that in the past century, the population has decreased by half. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a call for action. So over the last century, the main threat for tapirs have been habitat loss. And that habitat loss has a name, which is mostly beef production. In the last 10 years, we have lost a high percentage of remaining tapir habitat due legal and illegal cattle farming. So that's when little changes from home can actually impact the survival of a species like tapirs or jaguars. Right. And jaguars are a big buzzword, especially in conservation. We know we're losing them at an alarming rate, but I don't know if tapirs are getting as much international attention. But based on like our conversation today, if these are the animals, as you said, quote, pooping rainforests, they seem like an incredibly crucial species that we need to be focused on. Yep, they are. Without tapirs, there's no house builders for jaguars. So they are probably, I, I don't want to say more important, but equally important as well as a keystone species for the ecosystem. You know, tapirs are creating space for other plants to grow. They are just germinating seeds inside their gut, them moving them around and pooping them. And they're happy doing that and they're saving the world. <laughs> Esteban, how often do you see tapirs? Well, right now I'm, I'm based at the, the Nori Miravalles Corridor, which is a really, really out of this world place where you can see tapirs in cropland and, you know, crossing between two national parks. So at this moment in my life, I see them once or twice a week or even more. Wow. That's, that's not common. That's rare. And then you have to be a crazy guy looking for them. And yeah, it's not that you're walking and you cross paths with a tapir. But, you know, like in a, in a normal year, I try to see them at least once or three times or four times. I have only seen two species of tapirs. I want to I wanna see all of them. I, I saw the Malayan tapir and the Central American tapir. I'm, I still have to see the, the South American species. 
You've got your tape, your bucket list. I have it. I have it and I will fulfill it. Do tape ears make, make sounds? No, yeah, they do. And that's a, I always ask that in my talks because you get to see people doing silly noises and never accurate. Because a lot of people think they sound like an elephant, like, mm, or, or like a pig, like, <laughs> and they actually sound more like a whale. And I've been practicing my tapir sound, but that's going to be in the next episode of the podcast. No! <laughs> I'm so curious. No, yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just gaining some audience for the next episode. <laughs> Okay, we'll have to circle back then. Give you some time to practice your tapir noises. Yeah, no, they sound, they sound like rhinos. And, and they sound like rhinos. And they have like this, I don't know, it's a whistle or a sound. But a lot of people, when they they hear a tapir call, they're not aware it's a tapir. I guess that could be a like, who wants to be a millionaire question? Like, who, what animal makes this sound? And you'll be like, Colin, Costa Rica tapir guy. I've got it down. <laughs> And I wanna maybe circle back to that younger Esteban. You mentioned that the first time that you saw Tapir, you were on the Osa Peninsula, is that right? That's right. So let me back up a little bit for people that don't know. The Osa Peninsula is in Costa Rica. It's on the Pacific side. It's the Southern Peninsula. And it has a large patch of protected primary rainforest, which is a part of what makes it so special. Yeah, there's a lot of things that make it special. Can you tell me about that memory? It seems like maybe that memory sparked a lot of of what has become of the tapir guy. <laughs> I was like five or six years old, and my dad had an old Land Rover that we went all around the country in it. And that day, that day we were walking by the beach. And to be honest, you know, when you're a kid, you create images in your brain. And, and to this day, I'm not certain if we saw a tapir or we thought we saw a tapir or we saw it around the bushes. But with all the images I had seen from the magazines, from the zoo, I was there and boom. I, I tell that was my first experience with a wild tapir because I felt it. And it was really, really, really excited. Like I'm, I'm, all my, my, my skin is feeling it right now. You have goosebumps? Yeah. And I think the Osa Peninsula itself can kind of have that effect on people. There's so much natural history and a lot of people go to the Osa Peninsula to discover things that they've never seen before in their entire lives. Yeah. And, you know, like thinking about the younger version of me in the last years, I listen a lot more to that little kid because, you know, in the end, that little kid led me to do what I do right now. If we work with kids, not in a way that we give a talk and we think that we're saving them, but in a way that we encourage them to get the right attitudes and behaviors in the way that they can actually be the owners and develop a great sense of belonging towards wildlife. That will save a lot of species and will save the planet. And I, and I think that's why I love listening to the five-year-old Stevan who will ask someone who, what are your 50 favorite animals and won't go away until you list them all. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you have if you could go back and talk to that young Esteban? Um, Probably don't let anyone tell you that it's not possible. Like when I was studying biology, when I first started biology, a lot of 
people would tell me working with tapirs is too expensive, they are too elusive, no one's working with tapir. And I was just that annoying kid asking the correct questions and writing emails. And, and, and I know it sounds easy, but <laughs> I'm just talking for my experience. And I, I'm the first scientist in my family and my first conservation <laughs> related professional in my family. So I had no contacts. I had nothing. I was just a guy willing to do stuff. And it worked. And then collaborate. That's the other step. And you have definitely used collaboration to your benefit and to the benefit of conservation across the country. And I want to talk more about that. But first, I want to know, was working with Tapir something that you knew you could commit your life to when you first applied to the ZSL Fellowship? <laughs> Absolutely no. <laughs> when, I, when I was applying to it, I told myself, okay, I'm going to be busy for the next two years. Then probably I can go and apply to Amazon or go and find a place to work elsewhere. And then you start getting trapped. Conservation, just like the meme, it's a trap. If you're passionate about it, you realize for every action you accomplish, there's like 30 actions and 30 needs and 30 challenges that show up. And then you get commitment with communities. You get commitment with local authorities, with peers. And then you end up establishing your own known profit. And I don't see a way out of this. <laughs> That's, it's kind of cool, but at the same time, it's, wow. I, I, I wasn't thinking about this when I clicked send to that proposal. And, and it's, it's pretty exciting. I feel safe and I feel I want to keep on doing it because I have a wonderful team around me and I have a wonderful people showing their commitment a lot of other conservation practitioners, as passionate as I am, as good or even better than I am in a lot of aspects. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to be a platform. We need a lot of tapir girls and a lot of tapir guys. And I, I see myself as a platform to create that. I would love to hear a little bit more about your desire to come back to Costa Rica. You were born and raised there. You received both of your degrees there. And now you're working as the director of Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation. It seems very obvious that you have a passion and a dedication to your home country. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's, it was just a matter of responsibility. When I was in Malaysia, I was thinking on staying there and keep on working there. But then I had the, that in my mind that hey, there's tapirs and there's other wildlife in Costa Rica. And I haven't seen anything like what I want to create there. Can you walk me through some of the work that your nonprofits are focused on? Yeah, we, we started NAI Conservation five years and a half ago. It was focused on tapirs. And then that led me to other programs, but for other species. I think when well, my friend Chris Jordan was quoting someone, saying, if there's a champion for every single endangered species in the world, we could save them all. That's how the idea of Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation started. Like, let's encourage and let's use the platform we have created for NAI to look for other conservation heroes in other species. And that's why Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation works through species programs. We have night conservation with tapirs. We have Atelis in collaboration with also conservation for monkeys. We have Oncilla for small cats. Now we have a manatee program where we're trying to structure invasive species, Kavik with Quetzals. And, you know, like as long as we have ideas and people 
willing to save those endangered species, we are open to hear and support. If you have a person right there who's passionate, who can devote their lives to, to the conservation of certain species, and then you start looking for the structure, for funding, for strategic planning and all that, something can be done. And, and that's how my career right now, it's at a stage of directing Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it sounds like you, as a champion of an endangered species, have kind of built a network for other champions of these endangered species to connect and to get real tangible work done. Yeah. And that has to do with something that that really, really matter for me. Sadly, in Costa Rica, being a biologist, it's hard. Ironically, we are a country that owns pretty much everything to nature, but there's not much job opportunities for biologists around the country. So the idea of Costa Rica Wildlife Foundation was to encourage people who are passionate about endangered species to find their way in with the support from a legal structure and with all the lessons that we already had before. You know, like, why should someone suffer the same difficulties I suffered five years ago? That's time we're losing for species conservation. We better use that time and energy to actually do something for them. So kind of streamline, make it like an efficient process, because as you said, we're, we're losing time. I do want to circle back to what you mentioned about the struggle of being a biologist in Costa Rica. Because as an outsider, I'm from the United States and I always picture Costa Rica as this lush conservation destination. But I did see recently the Minister of Environment of Costa Rica had shared an article talking about how it's really challenging for people with PhDs to find work in Costa Rica. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a big challenge for us as biologists. We have to reinvent ourselves, you know, like think out of the box and stop dreaming about getting an academic position. And I think we need to take our profession to a more practical version of it. It has to do in a lot with the way we value things. The way it is, everyone opens the tap, they get clean, drinkable water all around the country in Costa Rica. But no one questions where that water is coming from and what are the consequences of not investing in that mysterious unknown thing that makes clean water getting into your tap every day. And there's a lot of empty slots there that we need to fill as professionals. And there's a lot of action we need to do in policymaking and, you know, like education and communication so people can actually understand the value and the cost of conservation. And I think that will make a big change to change those stats that biologists, we have no work. Actually, we are like the medical doctors for the planet. That's how we should be seen. We should be seen as the guys with the knowledge to save humanity from an early extinction due to an environmental crisis. But we haven't understood ourselves like that, I believe. You know, like students, younger students right now entering the university, they, they, they are struggling with the urgency of a burning planet. They're also aware of the lack of opportunities for the career. So they are actually doing great. And, you know, like I... I feel happy for my position to be threatened by a lot of young people. I, I want to be able to say, I'm not the tapir guy anymore. There's this kid who's the tapir guy right now. And I'm happy that he's the tapir guy right now because I'm going right now to the beach and live there and, and relax. <laughs> <wherever. Huh>? No. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I'm really happy that 
younger biologists and younger conservation practitioners have, for the good or wrong reasons, they have a really, really burning energy uh, to take action and to do things better. So I'm really, really optimistic about what's to come for, for conservation in Costa Rica. I do believe that, that we are on the right track. You know, like, I think, I really, really think we can make a change in this world. And if there's a reason I'm not a, fo I'm not a footballer, it's because I think we can save wildlife. And probably because I am not a good player. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think we can, we can save the world. We can save wildlife. We can, and wildlife can save the planet. Beautiful, beautiful, Esteban. It was so great to connect with you. For those young conservationists just getting started or the experienced conservationists that just want to know more about tapirs or are maybe specifically curious about your tapir sound, how can people contact you? I know you're active on social media. Mm -hmm. So my Instagram is ebrenesmora, just like my last name. And then we have Nye Conservation in Instagram and, and CR Wildlife Foundation on Instagram as well. And we are also with the same names in Twitter and Facebook. Perfect. And we're mostly active on Instagram. And if you want to learn how to help, please contact us. I love talking about tapirs. People get annoyed. So if you're willing to make me talk about tapirs, I will. <laughs> is, Esteban is looking for the next tapir guy or girl. <laughs> contact him if you're interested. Yeah, any victims out there? <laughs> <laughs> Well, once again, Esteban, thank you so much for your time. It was so great to connect with you, to learn a little bit more about this jungle elephant pig, <laughs> um, and to learn more about your story as well. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Pura Vida. Once again, that was Esteban Brenes Mora, a world-renowned tapir expert. As he mentioned, you can follow up with him on social media. Find him at ebrenesmora. One more time, thank you so much for listening. Please leave a rating and a review on this episode and stay tuned for more from The Nature Dilemma. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by Osa Conservation.